0: I like a bed that's really firm. I need something a little softer than that. Rest easy. With the Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed, you can both adjust your comfort with your Sleep Number setting. Can it really
2: help me fall asleep faster?
0: Yes, by gently warming your feet. Okay, but can it help keep us asleep? It senses your movements and automatically adjusts to keep you effortlessly comfortable. Sleep Number, proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. Don't miss our President's Day weekend special. Save 50% on the Sleep Number 360 limited edition Smart Bed. Plus special financing and free premium delivery when you add a base. Ends Monday. Special financing subject to credit approval. Minimum monthly payments required. See store for details. I'll What
1: a screamer! What a screamer! What a fantastic goal! Arsenal! And here's limber lines it up! Finds the net! Arsenal in front! And it's Arsenal! Arsenal, FC! We're by far the greatest second half. Team the world has ever seen. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter, at Yankee Gunner. That was my least inspired intro, but it's going to be a very inspired podcast. We are by far the greatest second half team the world has ever seen. Not too bad a first half team either, if I do say so myself. We uh, cunted those cunts all the way back to the home they don't have. It was brilliant. It's a four-two victory in the North London derby, and here to talk about it is Tim. You can find him on Twitter at Silberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. And Paul, you can find him on Twitter at My Pants. Hi, Paul. Woohoo! And Clive, you can find him on Twitter, Clive P A F C. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. Hello indeed. Hey, we've got Scott down the line. We've got lingerie down the line as well. And uh, you know what? I want to put on some lingerie and watch a video of that game over and over and over <laughs> again because that is my idea of a sexy evening. It had everything. It had shit housing, it had fights, it had deli alley. Uh getting shown up by Aaron Ramsey. It had Eric Dyer shushing the crowd only to wind up making a complete fucking fool of himself. It was brilliant. And we're gonna cover everything that made it brilliant. And I guess maybe the first place to start is just with what it was like to be there at the Emirates. So many of you listening may have been there and many of you were not. And so Tim, uh as always, except when he's not, is there, was there. <laughs> Tim, I really have just two quick questions about the atmosphere. First of all, is just the general one for you. Uh how was the atmosphere and maybe just a little bit you know how did the how did the in the ground supporters respond to going behind
3: yeah it was it was absolutely rocking the atmosphere's been much better this season <clears throat> anyway um you know i'm not saying like the emirates has been uh, you know this this like completely raucous but it's definitely been a lot more positive a lot more together people trying to see the good things um a- everything we lost in the last couple of years but yeah i mean this this time it was it was even bigger, um and even better. And you know, we we started very quickly and that got people up and we got the early goal and uh, actually I think the equalizer might have knocked the stuffing out of um the atmosphere had it not been for the melee that followed it, which um kept everyone a little bit pumped. So um yeah, it it was it was one of, if not the best atmospheres of experience since the stadium opened. Yeah, that's I think great.
2: it was a turning point, Tim. Do you think going forward, ordinary teams coming to the Emirates will now start to feel it's a, a fortress to some degree? It's and funny that, that the- you should
1: ask that, Paul, because I have written here, ask Tim, does he feel like this turned Arsenal's stadium into more of a fortress? So I, I'd be well, very curious to get an answer to that.
3: transparent. Yeah. <laughs> Well, well, the thing is, our, our record at home over the last couple of years is absolutely brilliant. Anyway, yeah, um, and and that's that's a little bit why I've I've kind of thought that some of the Arsenal are completely different, completely transformed, has been slightly overdone. I think we're slowly going in the right direction, but you know, we beat Spurs by two goals last season. You know, we drew with Liverpool last season. All these games that have been fated as these massive turning points and evidence that everything is different. And you look at last season, even it, which was shit don't get me wrong but and and at home we were pretty peerless actually it was you know we had that one unlucky loss to united and it was only city that that took us apart at home and um but um yeah maybe maybe if you look at it like liverpool maybe was half a turning point even though i felt that performance was a little bit overrated but yeah i i I think so in terms of um because no nobody's really spoken about how formidable we are at home just because the perception of arsenal uh, the word formidable doesn't come to mind in the last couple of years even though we've been
2: results last year were brilliant exactly but it didn't feel yeah, and And the support exactly. would kind of come and wane. And, and then the other thing I thought on the support that I thought was different this time is we've totally seemed to have calmed down about playing out from the back, yeah, which is which is not a minor point. That's talking to confidence and trusting the team and getting yeah. behind the team. So I'm just kind of hoping that this game, the penny dropped for everybody that you know, when you get down, get behind the team, even when it's doing hairy things or struggling a little bit.. Yeah. You might just get a result here if you get behind them.
1: Yeah,
3: and you can see a lot of the players how a lot of the players reacted and, and I think it all fed off of each other. I think a few of the players were um maybe not surprised so much but you know there, there wasn't a lot of derby experience in that team and a lot of them you know you look at some of the I know it's social media and you know there's an element of veneer but you look at some of their posts and i I've been um I've just been wondering about like a for example what he's made of because you know he's been playing for Borussia Dortmund and that's what he's been used to for the last the last couple of years and then I I think about some of these guys we've bought from Germany who've been used to the Bundesliga atmospheres and And have come over here, and I wonder if they think to themselves privately, maybe even subconsciously, like, "Whoa, this this is like this is seriously not what I'm used to." But you could see guys like Abamian, Kalasinach. You you really felt like they thought, "Oh, wow, this like this crowd can do this. It's not like it's not like they're incapable." And and I think the players fed off of that. And then just when there could have been a lull, the the crowd fed off the players again with the kind of little melee at 1-1 and and yeah it was it was superb it was it was um it was a proper everyone was at one and not, nothing unites people like a like a common enemy yeah. um, and I think the players really got it you look at like Lucas Torreira's goal celebration you know he can't speak English he's only been here for three months and yet yeah, you could see how much it meant to him and I'm sure that's not because someone showed him a DVD of, like, a Tony Adams header or something. Like, that's something that even probably the day before the game, he probably thought, well, yeah, okay, it's a derby. I've played in, like, Samp Genoa derbies, and they're pretty serious. But you could tell that, like, the players felt it. And that that's that's something I think you only really get once you're actually out there and on the pitch.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, look, there there is not... Attitude, I think, that people say, you know, you need these players in the team that understand what the Derby is about, and and there may be some truth to that, but the reality is that when you get a fight like that, and you, you get the players going after one another, suddenly they're not just playing for the club but they're playing for their teammates and there seems to be some real great camaraderie in this squad and so i think the fight was a galvanizing moment because now you you know everyone was standing up for one another and that's something that maybe we haven't seen in the past i think at some of the low points in prior seasons you'd see one of our players get tackled roughly or picked on by another you know uh, another team and there'd be no one surrounding that player defending him and everybody was in to this to this fight, you know, defending their their teammates, and that was great to see. Ooh. I, I want to get to the actual football now, though, and and I'm going to give a quick programming note here. The Mesut Ozil thing is important enough to discuss. It is not important enough, in my mind, in the context of this performance and this victory to put at the top of the show. So what we'll do is we'll backload that, and assuming that we're not at the three-and-a-half-hour mark when we get to it, we will talk about the Mesut Ozil thing, because I think it is relevant. He is certainly an important part of this team and this club. But in the meantime, let's talk about uh, the players that were actually there and what happened. And so, Clive, you know, one of the things that that was interesting, obviously, is that we chose to start with a back three, and it was a very similar setup to what we did against Bournemouth. And on this podcast, we sort of wondered, or I, I certainly wondered, whether the Bournemouth lineup was picked with an eye towards this game. And I was very impressed with that Bournemouth performance, and I thought that it was maybe an audition for how we wanted to set up for this game. So, I mean do you now in retrospect think that maybe that's exactly what he was planning and were you surprised to see him go with the back three for this one?
4: No. I think I, I said it last week that we'd go probably the same team. Right? So um, I think I think it's the it's the, it's the best way to maximize the squad at the moment and I think the Montreal Colossianx Thing has really been a deciding factor, and I think the Danny Welbeck thing has been a deciding factor. This is the best way to keep offensive strength on the pitch, while not having to have two forwards on the pitch at all times. And I thought the Bournemouth performance really worked. I really wanted it to work because I think, I think it suits his team. And I think it suits the team during you know what I said previously. What other? The points accumulation month of December, when we have lots of games close together, I just think it's quite a simplistic formation. It's very simple to play. It makes people feel comfortable. You have good exit strategies. You have the interior of the pitch well covered, and you can play with a a 3 4 2-1 2-1 or a 3 4 one, two. very very easy change dynamics of the players and away you go and that's what he did in this game and and i and i think um you know what he's doing right now is that he's a, a master class and I, I did say the bournemouth game was the best tactically he's he's been and now he's done it again and i i really feel strongly that he has he is producing something Tactically, every single week that has nuance to it. But I, I, I hear what him saying about are we overreacting, and I think if you, I take my mind back to a lot of his interviews that he's given, and, he, and he's continually talking about the connection with the fans, and I think that's what he's trying to get through to the players. He's trying to get them to realise their importance and how we can connect this club back to the fan base. If you were interviewing for that job when he was interviewing for that job, there would have been four or five things that you would have to do to get that job. And connecting to the fans, given how division device, divided sorry, we were for the last three, four years, has got to be number one on that list. It has to be. And what we're seeing now is a connection. And everything that's been done on the pitch, his conversations off the pitch, how he acts off the pitch, Everything is done for me to bring that gap closer. And I, I saw that in the players. I saw a ferocity in the players to to give the fans their day. you know. And I've, I haven't seen that or felt that. You can even see it from the first penalty. If you look at the players in the background when that penalty was awarded, it was early in the game. And you just see Shaka Mustafi. You see them just absolutely fully pumped up, celebrating it before it's gone in, goal we're off and running right in front of their fans and i i just felt this massive massive appreciation and empathy that we're here for you now and we're going to give absolutely everything we've got and um and i thought that came through yesterday and we we all enjoyed it no doubt
1: yeah i mean the the effort and intensity you know look we have a lot of quality in our squad, and I think you could make an argument that we have not just a better, but a much better squad than Tottenham, uh, You know, unless you read the combined 11s in the uh, English press, which I wonder how, how many of those combined 11s are entirely Spurs squads now, but in addition to the quality, there was a tremendous amount of application in this game. And, and Paul, one of the things that was so easy to spot was the first 20 minutes of this game they couldn't get room to breathe. They didn't have a second to pass the ball. They were giving the ball away. We were taking the ball off them. We were pressing them intensely. And, you know, the the thing that I'm I'm starting to work on as a theory here with Emery is that one of the things that makes him so different is he identifies the strength of the opposition, and then he sets us up in a way that nullifies what they do really well. And Spurs are a really good pressing team. They're not a great football-playing team. And Clive talked about it on the last podcast about, you know, how... You can get at them, and they don't like to necessarily play the football, and they really do you see it some of their most effective attacks were just quick restart long balls from from you know dead ball foul situations, set pieces, things like that. I think by playing the back three by not trying to necessarily build from the back and play possession football, we really nullified where spurs can hurt you. You look at the Chelsea match, and Chelsea want to play a lot of football, play a lot of passes, build from the back. We didn't give them that we didn't give them the opportunity to create those chances and transitions we pressed the crap out of them. So, you know, were you impressed with the intensity of the pressing early in the game? You've talked a lot this season about how we're not mm-hmm. a pressing side, but in this game, we not only did it, but we did it better than the team that's known for it.
2: Yeah, well, that's a very subtle way I think once again of pointing out how you said something earlier on that turned out to be correct. You... I didn't
1: think it was subtle. I it was totally intended. In fact, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to do that more when we come on to Aubameyang. I promise you. So, if you like that part of the podcast, stay tuned.
2: Yeah, you had posited that maybe we're a pressing team against the big teams because we did it against City and Chelsea, and then we basically didn't do it for a long time. And my theory was, now we tried pressing. He decided to drop it. Uh, it was just coincidence. It was against the bigger teams. He tried. He decided to drop it because he decided we weren't very good at it, and we had other problems to fry other fish to fry we had to sort out the defense in the midfield and he wasn't going to have half our team stuck in their final third when he hadn't even worked out our defense midfield maybe i was right and it's just coincidentally when we came back to the big teams he thought we were ready for it but it would appear that we press against the big guys and the first 20 minutes was just electric we swept them off the pitch for 20 minutes now as we've seen with other teams there can be a dip after that, and maybe as we're new to this game, we let that drip, that that uh, drop off come a little too precipitously and a little too suddenly because they then own the next twenty minutes. What I thought to pick up on Clive's point on this, um, I thought it was fascinating that during our twenty minutes, when we were knocking them about both sides of the head, you still saw clips of Emery and his. Uh, his right-hand man taking out charts and discussing the problems and me thinking but we don't have any problems but they were obviously seeing the seeds of of where our vulnerabilities were um so that mentally they were already, they obviously had a bunch of scenarios because that was a prepared piece of paper that had in front of them so um we out-tactic uh, against how and every move we made was ahead of the move that Pochettino made or superior to his moves. Uh, Clive talked about the different formations, but we were always kind of one step ahead. Once, once we came back from that 20-minute lull, we ended the half strong, and then we made significant changes twice in the second half in responding and in responding to injuries as well. So I think this was an incredibly impre- m- more impressive than – Liverpool and against uh, Bournemouth in terms of her tactical changes, he was, he was right on this, and I think you're right. It, you can't be that prepared if you didn't start a week out with the Bournemouth game. Uh, it's clear that he raced, he rested basically everybody for this game coming into this, and yet still had the, you know f- subs on the, the ha- halfway ha- halftime uh, changeover. That totally changed or totally revamped our front line um and took us onto a new level. I mean you look back on it in hindsight and it's just it's just brilliant management.
1: Yeah, and you know what's interesting? So so Tim, I actually thought as I watched this that the subs were pre-planned, <clears throat> the halftime subs. Because mm. while I don't think a Woolby and Mkhitaryan were fantastic, I certainly don't think you would have looked at them and said they're bad. We have to get them off. We have to get on mm. you know, Lacazette and Ramsey because they're bad. I think they, Iwobi and Mkhitaryan ran their asses off. They were yeah. super intense in their press and they were running the channels nonstop. That was clearly the plan. Overlap, overlap, overlap. Bellerin had two through balls in the game. Uh, Kolasinac had two through balls in the game. the The plan was press intensely. Using those two wide forwards and then have them run the channels for the overlaps and, you know, I, I wonder if maybe he was thinking they can give me a hundred percent for forty-five minutes, give me ninety minutes mm-hmm. worth of effort in forty-five minutes, then I'll bring in two new guys and we'll do it all over again. Now, to be mm-hmm. fair, we probably needed the extra goal scorer on because or two because we were behind at halftime. But I'm curious to get your thoughts on. The use of a Wobian Mkhitaryan and the extent to which that maybe a, a change like that might have been in his mind even before the game started.
3: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think the changes were pre-planned. I'm not convinced he maybe as early as half time. Um, I think had we been one nil up, maybe he wouldn't have quite done that, and it was a reaction a little bit to going two one behind. But I mean, look, he's got Ramsey and Lacazette on the bench. I mean. They, they weren't ever going to stay on the bench for long and I think you're quite right, I think the message would have been very much, right, put absolutely everything into this because, um, you know, he might have been thinking 55, 60 minutes for Awobi and Mkhitaryan uh, and whether he planned it to be a double sub or, whether you know, I, I think those changes would have been made by hook or by crook. Um, maybe he ended up making them 10 minutes earlier, but I agree with you. I think that was pre-planned and um, Emery seemed to reference that in his post-match uh, he said something about I had scenarios prepared. Yeah, saw that. Um, and yeah, and whether he meant I had a scenario prepared for if we were a goal down, or like you said, he already had this planned anyway. But it, it, it's a great, uh, it's a really good, clever tactical switch. That um, you know, I, I've I've said a few times over the last few weeks. I I think some things have been only slightly overplayed, only slightly, and um and and I you know. I, I reiterate, I've got no problem with that. I'm happy with people looking a little bit on the sunny side. But the, but this time, I, I really like, I, you know, I, I'm on that hype train this time. I think the manager won us this game, um, both with the, you know, we played three different formations um, during the course of this game. And that did not look awkward to these players at all. They looked like they knew what they were doing every step of the way. Um, with it and yeah maybe maybe after the first half an hour it was a little bit natural that we faded a little bit I, I'm not convinced we faded so much as maybe deliberately took a little bit of a step off but um, yeah I mean with when you've got players like Ramsey and Lacazette on the bench both of whom are a really good and b have that proper high end you know are fully capable of doing that high energy um, kind of thing and and you know it was it, it's been gone over quite a lot, but it was a lovely change because it completely ruffled Spurs. They they thought they'd worked us out, and I thought they had as well. I I, I got worried at two one. I thought the game was slipping away from us. I thought Spurs had settled into it. I thought they'd sussed us. Um, and then you know that that lovely change to completely like just invert that front three, give them a completely different different problems, splitting, you know, Lacazette and Aubameyang, getting them running into the channels and Ramsey running into the middle. It just, it worked perfectly and Spurs had no answer to it. And one of the common criticisms I've seen of Pochettino this year is that he, he doesn't make subs well, even though he's got a slightly deeper squad now, most of his substitution, like he didn't make a sub in this game till like the 79th minute. And, um, they, you know, they weren't completely bereft. You know, they had players like Lucas Mora, um on the bench. I, I don't know if Eric Lamella was on the bench as well, but, you know, they had players there available and, you know, he just didn't react and... Um, yeah, whether it was exactly plotted out for 45 minutes, I, I'm not sure, but I, I definitely think um, I definitely think those changes for those personnel were definitely planned plenty in time for for the last portion of the game.
1: Yeah, and I love the idea of giving them a different problem to solve because, to your point, Mkhitaryan and Awobi are ball dominant players who did a lot of good work on the ball, and then you bring on two new players, and the problem for Spurs became much more the off the ball running which is a very different way I have to defend and a different problem to try to solve. So, you know, you're totally changing their their sort of sat-nav or their GPS of where the players are going to be and how to follow them. I, I, I thought it worked brilliantly. And Clive, I'm I'm curious to get your thoughts really quickly before we move on to some of the incidents and some of the really top performances, but of Mkhitaryan and Awobi and, and how they were used. I mean, you know, both of these players for me in this game got into good positions and maybe just didn't have quite the quality at the end of it that was needed to, to make the difference because in that first 20 minutes when we were dominant, I thought we needed and probably deserved another goal and didn't quite get it. And then we had a lull, a 15 minute period that kind of ironically, it was when we had the ball more. I thought we really missed the extra man in midfield during the down period where they came back into the game because Torreira or Shaka would get the ball and they were struggling to progress it a little and we just looked a little outnumbered in midfield. And the only time of the match where I felt that was that period where we were in a lull. But overall, I mean, how do you feel Mkhitaryan and Iwobi did in the half that they had to play those roles?
4: I thought they did fine um, I thought on Mkhitaryan I thought he was steady as he always is nothing spectacular did some good things Iwobi I've, a little issue with him He's just like a little bit of conviction after the dribble what he's doing is doing a dribble but he hasn't got the next picture in his mind and he's just he's having to check check a, a few times and and push the ball safely he's got ability on the ball no problem and if he'd have scored that cutback goal we, we would be saying anything we'd have gone into half time potentially 2-0 up and we'd all been very very happy in I, I sort of agree with what you're saying about substitutions. I think most managers know their substitution before they go out. They're planned. They know what they're going to do. The timing may change. I think with this one, and then we said it himself, when he asked about substitutions, he sort of said, I want you to change something. And the power of substitution is, is great because what you're doing is you're you're now – controlling the story of the game you're now getting the other team to react to you so we getting a substitution in first, you make them react <laughs> as I said last week the big thing for me was the big difference between this Tottenham team and last year's Tottenham team was Moussa Dembele there was nobody there to give them that control in the centre of the pitch and I did sort of say to you that we can press them in the middle of the pitch because Sissoko, Dyer and Winks are not press resistant they're not very clever on the ball we're good they at get football their heads. just full stop <laughs> they're just not good they're, they're good in they're good Wings in go forwards all right fine. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll debate that with you as yeah, long as you thing. like right so um <laughs> um and what what they're good at is it's good times when they're going forward. So when they when they control the story and they're pushing the ball into areas where they want to be, they are a very good team. They're, a, they're a, a team that needs the game in front of them. And the only period of the game when they were, I felt they were good, was when Son got in two or three times. When they got him in, in behind us and got us running backwards, then they looked like Spurs. That's the only point we like Spurs out on set pieces. The rest of it, we dominated that game. And Son was their best player for me, the only player that would cause any sort of danger. And once we got through that patch, and then we scored the goals and we controlled the story, they were done because they had nowhere else to go. They couldn't get the ball into areas because we were so aggressive. We were so ferocious. We pushed them back, and we now had them in areas where they didn't want to be with players. That have names, but they're not that good. I mean, Aurier. I mean, seriously, he's bad. He's just a bad player. He's not good at all. And I thought well, that was a big part of their vulnerability. He just—we spoke. We're such a left-sided biased attacking team with Colin Scenic. That was uh, that was always going to happen. Now they played that guy Foyth. Well, I don't know what he is, right? And Batongan. Um, <laughs> has just come back from injury, and he looked like he was about to cry the whole game. And and Davis was completely. He, he was intimidated by Kolasinac and every repeat a broken play in it, and he didn't want it neither. And I'm hearing about these Spurs back four rubbish, absolutely rubbish. Without Where was Alderweild, Alderveld or whatever? Was he is, is he injured or suspended? Well, no, no, people, he was arrested. People, people, people talk about these two players, and they are good players. But you know what? Do you know what? Can I have got a theory here. Right, there's a problem at Spurs. They're reaching their ceiling, and their ceiling, their biggest issue happened in the summer. And it wasn't a fact I didn't buy anybody... The issue was they didn't sell three players. They wanted to sell Rose. They wanted to sell Dembele. They wanted to sell Ardovara for 140 million quid. And the rest of the league has woken up to the fact that Spurs are very good at recruitment. We're not going to buy their players and give them lots of money so they can come and beat us. We're going to let their players stay on those silly little contracts and we're going to come and get them for free. That's what's happening right now. That's why the power, that's why they're slowly but surely having to reintegrate these players they would have normally sold And that's why there's a disenfranchising within their dressing room. And as soon as they have a bit of pressure coming up in the next few weeks, I think they could go. I have to correct
1: you just real quick, though. They don't actually have a dressing room because they don't have a stadium. So (laughs) technically, there's no problem in their dressing room. They just don't have one.
4: I think they could go. No, I really do. And I think, you know, I think we're going to, we're going to go past birds and we're going to obviously hopefully stay ahead of Manchester United. And that's where the top four situation is going to come from. So again, going back to the substitutions piece, I just think what we did was control the story by making a change. And that change could have been anything. But we have to make a change, so they have to react to us. Once they're reacting to us, we are controlling it. The first time I saw that, really, at close quarters, was in the Fergie days when you used to have your and Cole, when it wasn't going good, Shane and Musolskar, and you had to beat them twice. You literally had to beat them twice. If you beat them once, no chance. you got to beat us again. And that's what we're doing now. you got to beat us twice. you got to beat the first team, then we go again, and with the second team, and we drive into the ground late in games. And I, for one, I'm enjoying it.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it was great to see. I I just felt that all over the pitch, you could see that Spurs are physical, they're aggressive, and they know how to play direct, quick transition football. But they don't play technically skillful, uh, adept football. And, And we put them in situations where they had to play out and they couldn't do it. I mean, Paul, real quick. You know, the midfield matchup, I thought we won it well. We're going to get to Terra's performance later, so I don't want to touch on that yet, but I mean, do you have sort of a quick thought on you know how yeah. we were able to, to outclass them in that area of the pitch?
2: Yeah, bloody do. So when you looked at the <laughs> Spurs Chelsea game, Delhi Alley played a key role pressuring uh, Jorginho. And he played the same role in this game, and he didn't get his claws either into Chaka or to Terrera. We're going to talk about them both a little later, but I thought that was key. We can discuss why that might be. Yeah. But the fact is, they didn't. Uh, we see Chaka having this Achilles heel. Uh, we know is good. <coughs> they did not get a claw into either player at any point in the game, including when we played out from the game, fr- from the back. We played out from the back. We also went direct. We went long. They didn't know what the fuck was going on. Ali had absolutely zero impact on us, and I would love to have another crack at Chelsea right now. I think we're a different team.
1: Yeah, I, the thing I think that that is obvious to me about why that was and why this was such a smart play is, Terreira and Shaka were five ten yards further up the pitch than Spurs expected them to be because we were playing mm. with a back three, and so the defenders mm. were playing out to the to the wing backs or breaking the lines through to the to Shaq and Torreira, who were 10 yards further up the pitch. They were nowhere near Deli Alley. Jorginho was and dropping Torreiro
2: in. And Cha- Torreira and Chaka work as well. That's the other thing, well, right? Well, yeah,
1: Un- unlike the, the Conte-Jorginho situation that they've got going on there. So, so Paul, just yeah. real quick, a couple of incidents. First of all, their penalty. I mean, I I can't see how it's a penalty. I mean, NBC in the United States went to Sapruder film on it and showed that like one stud of, of Holdings touched the top of, of Sun's boot. It's a dive for me. Do you have any maybe blame for holding there though with sort of what you know the the stay on your feet son old adage i mean he he shouldn't be diving in like that and that gives the referee a decision or do you just feel it's it's a botched call by by Mike Dean
2: uh i want to be very very unpopular with all gooners so i actually think it's fine as a penalty cuz that's not i don't judge penalties with the microscope i judge penalties by would it normally be given and if that was given to us i would have said we put the pressure on them there was contact he came flying in fuck him so i'm so, sorry So you
1: will give holding some some blame there right then i mean that that he doesn't need yep. to go sliding like that and that gives the referee the opportunity to make the uh,
2: i will give him 75 percent of the blame okay. for that been a penalty sorry
1: no no problem so th- so then when when they put the penalty away and dyer shushes the crowd and um, or sorry, that yeah, was the, the second goal, sorry. I love it. Yeah, I mean, and then the fight yeah. breaks out. I mean, two things. First of all, what do you think of the Arsenal response to that melee, to that situation? And how influential <laughs> do you think it was in the attitude that we saw from, from the team going forward?
2: It was great. And if you want to know the the impact Lick Steiner has on the dressing room, I mean, he's right in there. He's the first he's guy I see on camera. <laughs>
1: yeah.
2: He is the shithouser. And you put <clears> players like him and Socrates and uh, Chaka and those guys don't back down. Uh, it's delicious to see Ramsey being so engaged in the game because after all, he could be nursing an injury somewhere or throwing a Moody. And when the man's called on, the guy's fucking ready. But he's already ready, ready at, at uh, during the incident on the touchline. And they're all there. Um, And then you bring the intensity that Torreira brings on the pitch, which I think relates to, you know, it's all a continuation of the sorry, we're not we're not going to give you a moment's fucking rest. We're not going to back off anything. We're going to turn a negative, as Tim talked about, uh, conceding the goal into what they went and did was they aligned the crowd, the players and the squad to say, right, uh, fuck the score. We're fucking furious. We're coming at you and you know they lit a fire and it might carry us through this whole season and it might have been the thing that turned their season as Clive talked about Uh, it certainly has a teetering there's definitely cracks in that squad and in that team in that situation and this is a competition against the top four, they delightfully took three points off Chelsea last week, I wasn't so happy about it then but right now it's a three way tie and as I say, give, give us another crack at Chelsea, so I think That fucking touchline incident may be the thing you could look at in 2020 hindsight, that lit the fire.
1: And and you know what it reminded me of? Just the the whole game reminded me a tiny little bit of a microcosm of that game at the end of the season a couple seasons ago where Spurs totally lost it against Chelsea and went completely mental and and imploded. They can get rattled. And, you know, they love to make snide fouls and, you know, dive in with their studs up and and take dives in the box but they don't like it up them I mean they definitely don't like getting it back they don't like the physicality they don't like the dark arts I mean the way they went after uh Shaka for going down a little easier I mean how rich is that you know it's like they've been diving throwing themselves to the ground all game and it's hilarious watching Erickson totally lose his rag over that so I, I thought that moment was really important because I think it affected Spurs' mentality. I think they lost focus, and I think it galvanized the Arsenal fight back. But you know, just real quick, Paul, before I move on to Tim, I mean, do you? We don't need to kill him because we won the game. But do you think Leno holds most of the blame, other than the referee for not seeing the offside, but for the for their second goal, or is that maybe a little harder than people are giving him credit for?
2: Uh, well, not most of it, but, you know, as, as the the classic footballing phrase, he'll feel he could have done better is another way of saying, yeah, he fucked that one up. Yeah. But, hey, the good side of it was we always expected Leno would fuck one up at some point. It didn't matter. In fact, it played into the narrative that we went, you know, in a derby against Spurs. We'd like to go down and then come back and smash them we tend to lose or draw the first half so it it'll all be washed away as got it out of a system uh yeah he could have done better but so could the 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 forward man on the line i mean we let them have a free run at it it was all so soft that whole the the free kick i mean you can attribute blame along the way he had the hardest part of the job leno did so uh, i wouldn't give him most of the blame but Maybe, maybe the the biggest hand up on it, yeah,
1: yeah. And if you want to pick on the defenders a little bit in this match, maybe they just gave away one too many free kicks. You know, that were necessary. Socrates in particular was mm-hmm. guilty of maybe taking an extra little nip at at, at the Spurs players. But Tim, this in is on. A-
4: yeah just quickly the coaching message there is a front post zone we're in <laughs> the front post zone we're protecting it with terrera that's not really good. You can see the big wheelie bin wardrobe Dyer's big chest behind him. You're thinking that matchup doesn't look quite right and um we mm-hmm. didn't protect that front post zone to style as we used to in the past, so I think there'll be changes on set pieces you, going forward you, to make sure you that me i I love protected. a striker
1: whose best quality is defending set pieces um Tim, this is the section of the podcast where I break out the moisturizer and get comfortable. Let's talk about Aubameyang. Um, Mm. You know, I have been one of his uh, biggest promoters, supporters this season, a player I love, admitted at times that when he's been played on the left wing, I think we've needed more from him, uh, that I've wanted to see him at center forward. Uh, there are people that have gotten in touch, as you might say, to suggest I don't think he's got it, mate. I think he's he doesn't get involved enough. He you know, he doesn't influence the game enough. He's maybe not tough enough for the Premier League. This, for me, was his most complete performance at Arsenal. This was everything mm. he can do. He let us in tackles. Um, he <clears throat> scored a sensational goal that is of the highest quality, not just a tap-in at the near post or anything like that. And I thought his running mm. absolutely terrorized spurs but his pressure from the front i think m- made them all kinds of uncomfortable i i was so impressed with his performance do you just want sort to of want to give me your appraisal of his overall performance that second goal that he scores and in general you know where you think we can go with him as our striker
3: yeah i, I thought it was um his his best performance for arsenal by by quite a way um actually he he was far more involved but you know, I, I think part of that was um, a, a little bit here. Here, like a lot of the players, just seem to have that extra two or three percent um, for the derby, and uh, that can go either way. You can go too far with that, and you can play with your heart instead of your head but um yeah I, I felt he was just full of running and Spurs couldn't really live with him but I also felt that the uh, the structure around him was was just just played to his strengths um, well for like both systems we played for most of the game so you know he's got like we said um, about the Bournemouth game, he's got two fairly high-touch players behind him who are also looking to force turnovers. And if you've got a Bamiang up front, you know, he, he played for Borussia Dortmund, right? It's, it doesn't take a genius to work out that if you put a couple of players behind him who are going to force turnovers, he's going to have some fun with that. Um, but also, I think what the wing-backs do is they just give him that little bit of extra service because perhaps what someone like Iwobi or Mikatarian lacks in maybe creativity that you have with the Mesut Ozil, um, Kolasinac kind of brings that up a little bit and Bellerin, when you've got both of them kind of flying towards the touchline all the time. So yeah, like Iwobi and Mikatarian do that kind of really hard work. Um, kind of side and they force turnovers. They they probably haven't got the through ball that Mesut Ozil has. They're probably not quite that creative. But just having those wing backs, you know, putting those cutbacks in for him all the time, it's just, it's meat and drink. And so the, the whole thing was structured around him and around getting the best out of him. And then when we switch formation, um, you know, at half time, yeah, he's he's play, He's not quite playing out on the wing, so he's running the channel, which we know he can do. But he's also got Lacazette running the other channel, um, his mate, and and they had a really really good understanding about how to do that. And as for the goal, you know, we're we're waxing lyrical over the performance, and rightly so, um, because we're still on quite a high. Like I said, I thought at two one, I thought the game was slipping away from us. It needed um, something special. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, before that, between Tottenham's equaliser and Arsenal's equaliser to make it 2-2, I thought we looked in trouble. I thought Tottenham were controlling the game and um, albeit Tottenham didn't create a lot, but I felt like they were dictating the tempo. They looked quite happy. Um, The beginning of the second half, I really started to worry. I thought, oh, they, they look like they've settled into this. And, you know, when you watch the game back, that Aubameyang goal really comes out of nothing. We're putting no pressure on them. We're kind of struggling to get the ball. We dropped off a bit in terms of our pressing. And then, you know, it's a wonderful ball from, from Bellerin. It's brilliant from Ramsey to kind of um, really make up that space. But it, it's one of those goals in a stadium that kind of takes your breath away because you're not expecting it.
1: Um, nor and, and, nor was Hugo Lloris. <laughs>
3: well, exactly, exactly. You take them early like that, and uh, you know it's it's right in the corner anyway. So it's doubtful he would have got there even if he'd have seen it coming. But you know the 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 earliness with which he takes the strike just. You know, it it surprises the defender who who probably relaxes a bit because he just thinks, oh, he's just going to take a touch here. So I'll just, you know, show him outside. If the defender realizes what he's got in his mind to pull the trigger, then he he throws himself in front of it and probably makes a block. But it's the surprise element of it because he hits it straight away. The defender's thinking, right. I'll let him take his touch and then I'll get up his backside. Then I'll shepherd him. He's not expecting the shot. Lloris is not set for it at all. And, you know, you can feel it in a stadium when nobody expects it, when everybody just goes, oh, wow, that's like, that's, that's out of nothing. Um, and it was an absolutely superb goal. What, um, just what we needed at that point. And from that point on, we just didn't look back at all.
1: Yeah. Can and, I add? Uh, please. Yeah.
2: so, Uh, Tim started with Bellerin, but something we'd seen going on through that game was holding, switching the play to Bellerin, which is Mm. actually the first pass on this. This, I think that's the fourth time he hits that ball to switch it from one side to the other, which totally opens up the play. And I don't know how much he's been doing that in other games. But this happened four times before he pinged the ball to Bellerin and the whole side was wide open. And I think the other thing that was beautiful to Tim's point was Lacazette up front, but kind of going quite wide right and making all sorts of things happen from the touch line and playing in behind. It's, it's a whole new way of seeing him where he's not dropping deep. Uh, it, the the one-two formation up front uh, there's a real beauty. I've I've often wondered if if Lacazette could kind of play an Alexis role over on the left. Um, you know how could we use him if he's not at centre forward? Of course, with two forwards, uh, Aubameyang's the guy who's maybe most suited to getting in behind, being the most forward. And here you have Lacazette creating all sorts of stuff by peeling off to the right and making nice curved runs and, and opening up the whole field to play for us. Um so those were the two things that kinda hit me as as Tim was walking walking us through that goal.
1: Yeah, and I, I just think when you watch Obamiang, the way he covers ground and the way he runs and the the way he you know, he doesn't just run to a point, but the way he gets there so that he he pulls defenders out of position or creates an extra little yard of space I and mean, he's so intelligent with it and and he can make up the ground so fast. I just you know, I thought he was very good about against Bournemouth, and it was his first time playing center forward in the league in ages, and this is his second game doing it in ages. You know, really, his first start was Bournemouth since the Chelsea game. So, Yeah, you know, and I mean, he
2: was the press, too. The first 20 minutes. He had the
1: most tackles in the, in the team. I mean, it that, was
2: all Obama. I mean, it was plenty of other people, but it was Obama Yang. I mean, he
1: fucking tore it up. He did, and and I think so. You know, Clive. Let, let me just before we hit the break. Let me just ask you. I mean, I, you, I'm not saying you haven't liked Obama Yang. You've always liked Obama Yang. You've liked Lacazette too, and they're very different players. I'm curious. To get your feeling on the evolution of this position, and you know, Aubameyang is center forward, and whether or not your thoughts about him in that role are evolving, and and certainly within the context of the performance he put in this day, and yeah, you know, I mean, well, whether he should stay in that position potentially.
4: Well, when we spoke about him before, he was playing left, right? So he's he's playing more of a center forward now. I think. What I tend to do is not tie my uh, scarf to any particular player because no player is going to sustain a level of form throughout the season. And at various points in the season, emotionally, you need different things, different times, different structures versus different teams. Fair enough. I, th- I think versus the some of the better teams, I think a at centre forward really works because I think we're more we're more likely to get broken field play. We, we're more likely to see him. The, the touch, the touches doesn't really matter. It's more about what you do with those touches. And I think, um, you know, I I picked the team before the game, and I picked him to start centre forward. And I picked him to do exactly the same as Bournemouth, and and it worked really well. And having the the substitute from the bench allows us more firepower. And yeah, I, I more importantly, I I think he's getting fitter. I think he's looking stronger. I think he's looking sharper. And when you feel fit, I think you have better pictures on your finishes. And that goal or I, I just didn't see it coming, just did not see that finish coming. When it went past Lawrence's left hand, which is his strong hand, you're thinking he's waved that. must be going past the post. And when he went in, it's sort of like a bit of a shock, and you're thinking, like, how how has that beat him? But it, it's the timing of the shot, and, and that's, that just says pure confidence. And-
2: it was a giant tap-in. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. pure
4: pure confidence. But again, you know, we're talking about, Tim talking about the defender coming back. Well, Aurier is an attacking right back, and we've now got him running backwards, doing things he doesn't want to do, which is what we we forced in this game. There was a period, 5-10 minutes after half-time, where I felt a little bit concerned. And it was slowed down to their level. And then we slowly got out of it. And that chance w- was sort of coming. But I didn't expect that goal. And from that moment on, we 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 absolutely smashed them to bits. But, yeah, I think, again, I, I did not buy the Spurs hype train. I really didn't. And I predicted we'd win. I thought we'd win well. I don't rate their players. I really don't. But you've got to get them into places where they're not rated. And I think that's what Emery did. He forced his team. Into uncomfortable places, and we saw their quality and lack of. And when Spurs are under pressure, much like the game at Stamford Bridge, when they're under pressure, they start to fight and foul and become quite undisciplined. And that's where we forced them, and that's why we won the game jogging away.
1: Yeah, and you know, it sucks that we drew them in the Carabao Cup because the last thing we need in December is another fixture of this intensity, and that's going to be a really tricky one for Emery. Can he? Can he swallow his pride and, and maybe approach that with any less than the intensity that he did this match? That's a tough one. Um, I think we should do this. I think we should take a break. We'll, uh, we'll learn about lingerie, which is a, an important topic and one that is near and dear to my heart. Uh, and certainly if you're ever going to think sexy thoughts after this match would be a, a perfect time. When we come back, uh, after Scott gets his word in about the statistical analysis of the game, we'll talk about Torreira. We'll talk about Ramsey. We'll talk about, uh, some of the incidents in the second half. Um, Kolasinac perhaps as well. And then we'll probably finish up with a little on the Ozil situation in the United game. So still plenty to come. Stay with us. We're going to sell you some lingerie and be back with more after this. Guys, this holiday season, how about giving your wife or girlfriend something totally different? Something romantic that celebrates the unique connection between you and her. I'm talking about a luxury gift service called Enclosed that delivers designer lingerie to your lady month after month. Enclosed is like a flower of the month or beer of the month, but instead of flowers, she gets surprised with ultra high-end lingerie. And this is seriously high-end stuff, the kind of quality that will really impress your lady. Enclosed was designed specifically to help guys find gifts for their wives. Enclosed is all about helping you make her happy. This fosters intimacy and closeness, and as someone who is married with a toddler, I can tell you this kind of thing is so important as a relationship grows over time. And Enclosed is effortless for you. Every month, Enclosed sends your wife or girlfriend a custom-curated lingerie gift selected just for your lady, and they back the gift up with a 100% size guarantee so you never have to worry about fit. This is as easy and as satisfying as it gets. You can join more than 30,000 couples that love Enclosed, and I'll give you a little gift. Right now, you can get $35 off your Enclosed gift. Just go to EnclosedLingerie.com, that's EnclosedLingerie.com, enter the code arsenal. Can't forget that one. Enter the code arsenal at checkout and get $35 off any enclosed gift. Why not give your wife or girlfriend something that really reflects and deepens the connection between the two of you. Something that you would never give your mother. That's enclosed with the code arsenal for $35 off the best gift ever. Do it now. Okay, and now Scott is here to give us the statistical perspective on what was a glorious victory in the North London Derby. But the, the statistics, I think in this case, are going to back up the uh, the sensation that we got watching it, which is always nice when that happens. And so Scott is on Twitter at O underscore that underscore crab. Hello, Scott. Yeah! That is Scott's trademark uh, a welcoming introduction. If you, if you don't know the backstory to that, if you're new to the podcast, Scott used to give us this sort of humdrum hello, and I didn't really appreciate it. I always gave him shit for it. Then he came up with the e and we love it, and it stuck, so that's that. Uh, Scott, real quick, let's just go to the, the general statistics. As far as XG goes, I mean, did the, did the underlying metrics show us winning as comfor- comfortably and confidently as we did in the end?
5: Uh, yeah, it did. So um, overall, I had this one at 2.87 to 1.14. Um, so outside of the the penalties, even there, Arsenal uh, really dominated uh, with over two to 0.34. So it was a, a pretty comprehensive victory. Looking at the, the shot placement, those showed the, the same story. So yeah, this was definitely a deserved victory, not like some of those earlier in the season where Arsenal kind of uh skated by on luck
1: yeah and and i mean maybe the the sort of hidden story here i mean yes we conceded two goals but when you look at that the xg numbers and especially when you strip out the penalty which probably never should have been a penalty um that's pretty good defensive effort isn't it
5: it is this has actually been uh the best defensive effort by xg for arsenal this season um, looking at Bournemouth and this one put together, that's actually the, the first and the third best performances of the season. So it's it's almost like things are starting to, to round into form, which is a very positive thing to, to see, especially going to... Uh, Old, Trafford on, Old Trafford on Wednesday.
1: Yeah, and it's so it's so hard to evaluate rounding into form when the lineups and the formations change so often because you sort of feel like you got some footing under you in evaluating the team, and then Emery switches it up again, which maybe that's why the opposition is having so much trouble too. Uh, there were some great performances in this game. Really, every player gave so much to the cause, which was great to see. But statistically, some players really stood out. And I saw on Twitter you had uh, particular praise for Aubameyang. His best performance at Arsenal, certainly this season, right?
5: Yeah, and I think it's definitely his most complete performance from Arsenal. Uh, I know one of the things we've talked about um, several times is that he's a a world-class Theo Walcott where he doesn't always get involved in play and he really focuses on the the final ball either putting it in the net or making the final pass to set someone else up but in this match he really was doing a lot more than that um, not to say that he didn't do really well with getting shots and getting um, key passes um, but he also had a almost 90% pass completion led Arsenal in tackles um, believe it or not uh, with five um, he also blocked three passes, um, committed a foul, which to me um, isn't always a, a bad thing. To me, it also shows that you're engaged in the play, you're, you're making the effort. Um, and I thought that he did well as a, a trigger of the press, especially in that opening uh, 20 minutes when Arsenal were really on top of Spurs. Um, so I thought that this was probably um, his best, most complete performance of the season and probably overall with Arsenal.
1: Yeah. I mean, it was great to see. I mean, what was his XG personally for the game?
5: I had him at 1.5 overall for the game.
1: And that, I mean, that's the kind that's, of thing that includes and
5: you know. includes the penalty.
1: Am I right to say he had seven shots?
5: Um, I, I had uh, four shots for him.
1: Four shots. Okay. That, that sounds a little more reasonable. But again, you know, with all the other things he did in this game, it's great to see. And then, you know, the, the four shots, the 1.5 XG, he's now scored what? 10 consecutive shots on target
5: exactly yeah he's when he puts the ball on frame he's been finding corners and yeah it's been really good for him this season yeah he's he's leading the golden boot race now again or tied i think leading for the golden boot race
1: it's great to see i mean i i don't think anybody needs to be told what i think of him as a player but it's it's great to see him getting the results um both in goal scoring and contributing some of the things to the to the team performance overall that maybe we didn't think was in his locker so that's great now obviously Another player that everybody fell in love with, if they weren't already, was Lucas Torreira. Uh, a night for him to remember for the rest of his life, scoring his debut goal for Arsenal uh, in the Derby, but also just a, a dominating performance in the center of the pitch. How did he rate for you statistically? Did the did the underlying metrics pick up on the performance the way it certainly looked watching it?
5: Yeah, I think it definitely did. I know one of the things that's really impressive with Torreira is if you look at his touch map, it is really all over the field. The guy has a a knack for being where the ball is and being in the right position. The other thing that I'm always impressed with him is his ability to get ball recoveries. So anytime there's a loose ball, um, I think this also feeds into his ability to read the game. He is almost always the first one to it, getting that ball in those 50-50s and keeping Arsenal in possession. Um, He also added three tackles and um, two interceptions and blocked passes. Um, three shots total. Um, he had that one that was deflected, and it was just wide of the post. I thought that was going to be his opening goal. Um, but then he actually ended up getting the, the last one, and that was a, an absolutely beautiful, well-taken shot. Um, I think Torreira has just been an absolute relevation for the team. Revelation, but I, I'll take revelation. <laughs> um And he's been yeah, probably the signing of the season for me, and he's been that guy that's been missing from the Arsenal midfield for, for so long, makes everything tick um just makes everybody else on the pitch better
1: the joke when he was signed is someone on twitter said he's santi conte you know he's he's part cazorla part conte and everybody was kind of laughing about that but he kind of does look a little bit like that. I mean, that really is the player we seem to have, and I, I certainly have been impressed with him defensively, maybe even more than I expected to be, but certainly as much as I expected to be. But much more impressed with his all around game, which has been great to see. You know, one player who I'm just kind of curious to see statistically how his performance looks to you is uh, Kalasinach because. He's a player that I think a lot of people have been worried about and and everybody's been hoping for Nacho Monreal to make it back. But in the back three, he gets to play as a wing back, a position he certainly seems to enjoy more. Um definitely seems to emphasize the attacking part of his game, but was switched on a little more defensively. I mean, are, are there any statistics in his performance today that maybe suggest this is a role that suits him a little more and his performance might be rising to the level of being a longer-term solution?
5: Yeah, so I mean, I think as long as Arsenal stick with the, the back three, um, I think he actually might be the, the first choice um, on that left-hand side. Um, I don't think that he would be the first choice if we were going to actually play a back four and needed him in, in a fullback because is uh, might be one of the best final third players that Arsenal have on the team, which is actually pretty surprising. Um, Statistically, how it,
1: would you reference that? Like, what were some of the thing, areas where he excelled?
5: Uh, so one of the things that he does really well is in that wide area and in that um, half space on the left hand side. He really does a great job passing the ball. He led Arsenal, or he was second on um, Arsenal in passes completed into the box. Uh, Granit Jack actually led the team um, with five, and he had four. Um, he had five key passes on the day. Which That's was a lot. The- yeah, it totally is, and he he really does a good job. And these aren't just little key passes where it's a little you know three or four yard pass and then someone else does something else um he is doing a lot of the work with his key passes to set up his teammates um he led arsenal um with two completed through balls um, both of those into the final third um hector bellerin also um had two uh through balls um you know on the, the day maybe,
1: maybe something speaks volumes too about the way we were playing we were set up to play that our both our wing backs had a couple of through balls in the game
5: yeah, we definitely had um, a lot of joy um, finding the the width there because our, our Tottenham were, were very narrow because they were in kind of a a four four two diamond kind of formation, so they really had spaces to exploit on the wings, um, and then the the wing backs really had a lot of joy um, down those sides. Um, and then the other thing that was really impressive is he led the team in touches in the box, so that really does show. Um, his ability to get involved in the play deep and his ability to to stay on the ball and hold on to it. So really, this was uh, something that's very impressive. And I think that um, if you watch him play when he does make his crosses, one of the things that he does is he looks up, he picks out a pass. He doesn't just, you know, kick it hard and hope. Um, he's really doing a good job of finding his teammates in the final third. So um, I think that this is really brought out the best in him in this system and it's something that i'm very impressed with
1: yeah and look if it gets us scoring more and gets us creating more more power to him because ultimately this iteration of arsenal is going to be successful by creating chances and scoring goals more than you know sort of stalwart defensive efforts would sort of be my my interpretation there so if he can do that it it becomes a very valuable skill for us now a um, couple of other statistics that I think are interesting to look at, comparative statistics. First of all, Deli Alley had a night to forget. His second half is particularly hilarious. Do you want to regale everybody with his second half passing statistics?
5: Yeah. So this has been going around on Twitter, but yeah. So in the second half for Deli Alley, he had six passes and four of them came from kickoffs. So not the best day for Deli So he, Dele he completed Alli. two
1: passes from open play.
5: Exactly.
1: So good, good yeah. job, Deli.
5: Yep. And yeah. So, if all the people that I like to see struggle, Deli Alley is up there with the top because he's just a, a snide, really kind of just you know, a punchable face kind of a guy. So, I, I Aaron, Aaron Ramsey certainly
1: wanted a shot at him. That's for sure. Um, a couple other statistics, and this one may not be in your database, but between Arsenal and Spurs, do you have any uh, data on who has the most completed home stadiums right now?
5: Uh, yeah this one it it does show as uh one to nothing
1: one nil to the arsenal, yeah very fast all right well look it was it was a hell of a day it was a hell of a fun day um and, and a great result in the um in the top four battle as well because this puts us technically on goal difference ahead of spurs where we rightfully belong, but maybe just maybe it changes the model a little bit. I know a few weeks back we talked about what your model had in terms of our chances at top four, and I think we 're in the thirty percent range, something like that. Um, has that changed at all? Have we scooted up with this result?
5: Yeah, so before the match, I, I ran a, a couple different scenarios through, you know, what, what the win-loss draw all due to it. So a win uh, puts Arsenal in the about 47%. So we are um, looking a lot better there. Coin toss, yep. Um, so with the, the team ratings, both uh, Chelsea and uh, Tottenham uh, rate slightly higher than Arsenal on this. But I think if Arsenal continue to play like they've been playing over the last few weeks... Um, We'll start to see the team rating move up and, you know, in their spot right now, they are totally in it on points. Uh, The goal difference looks good. So I think that they are really in a a good spot to to really challenge for a, a top four spot.
1: It's Old Trafford on Wednesday. Not a lot of turnaround uh, after a game that I think took a lot of energy. I mean, we, we won well against Tottenham, but we worked very, very hard. So there may be some tired legs in the squad, and, and Granite Xhaka will not be able to play, but apparently United are facing an injury crisis of their own uh, in terms of unavailable center backs. Uh, do you have an early prediction in terms of uh, what your model says the most likely outcomes of this are?
5: Yeah, so the model is actually saying that this is going to be a, a very even match. Um, so Arsenal do have the the edge in the, the team ratings, but because this one's at Manchester United, uh, they get the, the home field advantage. Um, so right now I have it at 36.6% for United, a 26.3% for a draw, and 37.1% for Arsenal. Um, so very even. Um, I don't have a... a in there for uh, an injury crisis which I probably should Um, but I don't think even if there was an injury crisis uh, that Jose Marino actually trusts any of his center backs right now so it would be really interesting to what he would choose Um, but I think that the biggest key for Arsenal is going to be attacking Nemanja Modic another one that I can't say very well Um, because to me watching him play I think that he is totally washed and is past it and um, he is definitely not the player that he was at Chelsea, where he could be um, a sole holding midfielder to actually shield the back four. Uh, right now, he is basically a Sith that people can just cut right through.
1: Yeah, I mean, it'd be interesting watching little five foot four, five foot five, whatever he is, five foot three, Torreira running around after Pogba and Matic. Um, You know, certainly in terms of physicality they may have an edge if they have players like Fellaini and Matic and Pogba on the pitch facing potentially Ganduzi and Torreira. But in terms of technical quality and skill, I mean, I agree with you. I think Matic is totally washed. So, you know, that that's a, that's a big one for us. I mean, one thing that I'd, I'd like to cover just before we say goodbye then is, you know, I've been on Twitter giving it pretty large that I think we can win this game. And my reason for thinking we can win this game is, first of all, I dismiss the history at Old Trafford. I mean, the players don't play history. They play the team in front of them. And I don't think this United team is very good. But the other reason is, they're really really bad defensively for people who are wondering what i mean can you kind of give us a little bit of the data that backs up just how bad they are defensively because you know you look at our goal scoring form and you look at the talent we have in attack which is really our strength and the way we can play in the transition and you know players like obamiang whose movement is so slick and whose finishing is so on point right now i mean united aren't just mediocre defensively they're they're downright bad aren't they they are,
5: and so you don't even really need to look at anything advanced to kind of get an idea. This this can be really basic data. Um, so going back to when uh, Jose Mourinho took over, um, his first season, uh, United allowed eleven and a half shots per game. The second season, that w- I'm sorry, the first season it was nine and a half shots per game. The second season it was eleven and a half shots per game, and they took a lot of uh, De Gea, amazing shot stopping, to be able to actually stay with the second best defense. This season they're all the way up to 14.6 shots per game Jesus. which is the fourth most in the league.
1: Holy cow. So,
5: <laughs> yeah, they're up they're up there with you know teams like like Fulham and Huddersfield and those are not really the kind of things that you'd expect from a team with the name Manchester United and they're allowing the sixth most goals this season so even though they are overperforming their xG they are still in the bottom a lot third. Yeah. <laughs> exactly.
1: So they so give up a ton yeah, of shots. Those shots turn yeah. into a ton of goals, and they give up good shots, too.
5: <laughs> exactly, and De Gea is still played really well, and even that, he hasn't been, um, you know, he doesn't have enough magic to make this turd sandwich into something palatable.
1: Well said, and a good way to finish. Gives us an optimistic uh, way to look forward to Wednesday, a fun look back on on the Derby victory that was, and uh, we will definitely talk to you after the three points which i am confident we will get at old trafford on wednesday so until then you can find scott on twitter at o underscore that underscore crab scott as always thank you so much
5: thank you i can't wait to bathe in jose Mourinho's tears after we beat them five to nothing
1: yeah and hopefully then after they lose he somehow signs like a 10-year contract extension we'll see in any event we're gonna take a short break we'll come back with more from the the crew that has no statistics to support their opinions right after this stay with us Okay, we're back. And now it is time to get into the littlest big man on the pitch, or the biggest little man on the pitch, and that is Lucas Torreira. And for me, he was our man of the match. Uh, He scored the goal to make the game safe. He broke up everything that Spurs tried to do. He had chances to score other goals, was maybe a little unlucky not to. But this was a, a real show of leadership and quality, not just tigerish determination but real skill and technical ability uh, i was so so impressed with this performance and tim i just want to get your thoughts on on torreira being the signing of the season the most influential player to come to any team in the premier league potentially you might have said jorginho ahead of this maybe would have been up for that for me it is torreira uh, we haven't lost since he's coming to the team he's solidified mm-hmm. some of our our you know uh, problems at the back but he's added a lot more progressiveness than I expected, and I thought he showed class at, at both ends of the pitch in this game.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I, th- I think everything we'd read, um, because there wasn't obviously a not a lot known about this player um, prior to us signing him, but everything we'd read was, you know, I- I've said this and written about this before. If you've been lacking like a really quality kind of defensive screening midfielder or destroyer for as long as Arsenal have, then. Uh, you know the words Uruguayan defensive midfielder really jump off the page at you, <laughs> yeah. and uh, and and in that respect, he's kind of he, he's been everything you expect, and 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 in many ways, Uruguayan players are, are the easiest to predict. Um, they they really the way they do youth production there, the national team take responsibility for it because the club game just isn't there, um, which is why they're, they're all quite similar because. Um, the good ones are all basically uh, their developments taken care of by the national team, which which creates like a real unity. So when when you sign a Uruguayan who's been in the national in the junior national teams, um, you kind of know what you're going to get. It's a bit of a factory. Um, but I, th- I think you're right. I think, you know, and, and everything we Red read kind of said, you know, he's quite handy on the ball and he can pass. But, you know, he could, it, it's not just he can pass well for you know a shit kicking defensive midfielder he can really pass he can really progress the play he can play he's got quick feet and you saw with that run and that finish you know the, the run is excellent it's actually um it's it, it's not quite as easy as it looks like he catches Dyer off guard it's a lovely spin and run forward Um, And then the finish is just I loved it because I really, really thought um, because I was I was, you know, at that side of the pitch and what every Arsenal player does in that scenario. And I, I understand it is they go for the pullback. But, you know, how many times have you seen the pullbacks a bit too hard and, you know, the striker has to take a touch and get it out of his feet and it gets blocked or it goes over or something like this was one time I saw him running through and I just thought, no, plant it put it in the corner like you've got the angle don't, like don't mess about like trying to square it to Lacazette and um yeah it was, it was an absolutely fantastic goal and and a good ball from like, Aubameyang by the way yeah yeah him. yeah absolutely and and that's that's not a quality Aubameyang's usually renowned for either right? no, <laughs> His no. kind of
2: a left-footed through ball too
3: yep. yeah yeah you you'd expect that to be the other way around Torreira kind of sliding Aubameyang through there um, but it just—I think it also shows you the momentum and the confidence we had um, at that point. But, and it was—it's it, a really fitting first goal for him. I'm—I'm I'm really, you know, it doesn't matter ultimately. But I, I'm really glad his first goal for Arsenal was one like this, and you know, not some um, like I don't know, like fifth goal in a five-nil home win against Burnley
1: or something. Look I'm, what I'm it really meant g- to him too. I mean, yeah, he like yeah, he was gonna
3: absolutely. Cry. Absolutely. And it, and it really put the cap on his performance, which I thought was excellent. You know, I, I think him and Xhaka have been a really, really good partnership all season. And I, I, I thought Xhaka was was good. I thought he was, you know, a bit of a leader out there. But Torreira just, you know, he's, he's just taken that part of the pitch to another level. And, I you know, our midfields by no means perfect. But I, I think you're right. I, I struggle to think of a signing at any club um this season that's that's been that good. And I, I struggle to think of a team that Torreira wouldn't get into, which um, you know, may, may prove to be a worry. Um fair point. A little bit down the line. But you bite your tongue. But let's not <laughs> let us not worry about that at the moment because um yeah, he, he looks you know, he he looks like you know how like Kante at the moment is kind of struggling a little bit because he's being asked to do a slightly more technical role and he's he is quite good technically and he uses the ball well but it's still not quite um doesn't really suit his qualities but um with with Terrera it's just he he's just the full package he really is I I struggle to think of a weakness in his game and I just um I love that that video clip that emerges of him like with Ali and Eriksson and you know Torreira's like on the floor for most of it. And they still can't get the ball off him. And Ali, cause he's a snide little cunt, gives him a little nudge when he's on the floor, you know, little knee in the back of the neck that the referee can't see. And he ju- he just like, it's, it's not, it's just, it's almost like he doesn't even notice that people are trying to kick him. He's just, he's he just probably so got it focused. all the way up through
1: youth football as they kick the crap yeah. out of each other all over Uruguay. <laughs> absolutely.
3: Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just yeah, he, come then, out with the ball. And he does it every time.
2: He he reminds me a bit of Arteta and a lot of Cazorla when he goes into those things. He always comes out with the fucking ball. Yeah, yeah. he's got
1: a
3: really low center
1: of gravity that's very underrated. Yeah, Yeah. you know what it is, too? You made a good point about not seeing much of him beforehand, Tim. And I'll admit, the most I'd ever seen of him was for Uruguay this past summer at the World Cup. And they had like 20% possession in that World Cup. He played very deep. And I swear to you, if you looked at his stats, I bet his biggest passing total in any of those games was 10 passes. So you just didn't get a real picture of what he could do. And much like the Coughlin, uh shaka partnership when we went to a back three under Wenger, in the back three, both of those guys play a little more advanced. But Torreira is getting into advanced positions he wasn't getting into into the 4-2-3-1. And so mm. in the Bournemouth game, he had a couple of chances that that just flashed by the post. He had an earlier one in this game that took a nick and just went by the the the, the upper corner. It was a really exceptional performance at both ends of the pitch, but the back three, I think, gives him a little more of a platform to get more forward. He's almost like a defensive Ozil, and what I mean like by that is, one thing that Ozel has about his game is he always knows where everything is at the pitch and seems to be able to anticipate it in ways other people can't. Torreira does that defensively. He he never seems to be like two-footing anyone or flying in the way Coughlin was. He just always seems to be one step ahead of where the ball's about to be, um, and he has tremendous anticipation. I mean, Clive... His partnership with Shaq is excellent. Have you noticed and did you notice in this game maybe a slightly different role for him with the back three that allowed him to pick and choose his points to to get further up the pitch and maybe be more influential than just being a, a, a retriever of the ball?
4: I think Shaq has been a slight change rather than, than Torreira. I think Shaq has been on that booking to get him suspended for a couple of games now and I think he's been a little bit more passive and, and he stayed a little bit deeper. Well, now, now he misses him. the
1: easy United game and, and he's back for the big Huddersfield yeah, match at the weekend, though, so that's good. So yeah, he, yeah.
4: he just needs to get through this one more game. He was similar at Bournemouth. He was quite passive at Bournemouth and I think he was a little bit passive here. Still very, very good. Still very controlling. Still positionally really, really good. Just not quite as all action, getting himself into areas where he has to make big fouls. He ended up making one and, and see you later, misses Old Trafford. So I think Torreira has picked up some of that slack i think historically in his in his career he used to be a right winger would you believe and you don't often see right wingers ended up being defensive midfielders i think that's an unusual transition positionally wise and um you sometimes see right backs going in there or center halves going in there but you don't see right wingers going in there so when he receives that ball on the right hand side he just spins around the corner that position, the muscle memory is already there, right? Right winger, you. you that cross shot is what you, you spread on battle for you. So he's in that situation, and he uh, and and he slots it. So, so yeah, the, the, it's been the biggest change apart from the manager and his coaching and the fact that we are running a lot more and much more intense. The biggest change has been our centre midfield too. We dominate the area of the pitch in all facets and we have done since these guy's come in and we've not just found one player we've found two players and the team is rocking around them really really nicely and we're starting to concede you know less chances I know we, we gave away a couple set piece goals here today but uh, yesterday but um we're starting to see less of those one-on-ones going in behind us because we're, our intensity is is, is up the pitch is much higher so um, yeah I'm really happy with the centre midfield too and it'll be interesting to see what he does against Manchester United how he's going to replace Shaka and I think I'm not sure what you guys think, but I think he may go Tuzi, but other people may say he may go Ramsey. That would be an interesting decision when he um when comes well, to it. Well, let's talk about Ramsey then.
1: I mean, and I'll stay with you just for a second, Clive. I mean, here's a player. It's funny because I think we we all got it right on the last podcast, more or less, except Paul, who wasn't on it. So, in a sense, he got it right too. Um, I think I said, this is too good a player to just be frozen out because of a contract situation. We need to make the most of it. And you guys said... He's not frozen out. He still has a role to play, and that role can be very Massive. important. And I think we were both proven right because he is very talented, and he did get a role, and he did make a huge difference. So, Clive, I mean, I'm curious also if you think the the you know for him to be one of the first into the fight, right, the the Eric yeah. Dyer fight, to show you know, and I don't know if that's performance or if that's real. I have to believe it's real, you know, to show that that. You know, we, we like to overanalyze these contract situations. And two days ago, everyone's saying, oh, get him out of the fucking club. You know, if he doesn't want to be here, blah, 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 like we always are because we're all crazy lunatics. But he's, he's right in there defending his teammates, standing up for the badge. And then he comes on at halftime and puts in a, a massive effort that's hugely influential in the outcome. I mean, how impressed were you with the commitment and the quality that he showed, you know, for a player who maybe we've been wondering, you know, how much is, is left in his arsenal tank?
4: I, I was really impressed, right? And I think I'm a big team player, like right? team man. And when you when I see players podcast aside, like yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, when I see players playing like individuals, I I don't like it. I like to see the team structure. And, and Ramsey, that Tottenham made a mistake. Eric Dyer made a mistake. He he got him mad. Right, and um, because I, I actually think recently he's been a little bit sulky, not massively, just doing what he needs to do. But in this game, he was on full power, and I don't know what happened, but he was ready to go. And um, and both, you know, on both the um the assists I know the assists sort of almost took care of themselves but it was quite interesting they were both done off one touch really quickly really direct broken field bang in you go work on that you know and and I think that's exactly what was required for him so he played the role as perfectly as you could do for 45 minutes. You just could not deny it. He disrupted them. His movement was everywhere. He did some things that were not very pretty. But you know what? The intent to get in those positions to benefit the rest of the team, you could feel it was just different. It was just powerful. It was driving them back. He overrun a couple. Then he tried a couple of things. And you just didn't, on the day, I just didn't care because he was just driving them To distraction. He was everywhere too. I I mean, just everywhere. And and I I often, I sometimes think at fans, we focus too much on the execution. We should focus on the intent a lot more. Similar to Mkhitaryan at Bournemouth, his intent in the second half was really, really good. His execution was poor, but he was really trying to unsettle them. And I think, again, we focus a lot on that final path. I know it's important, and when it doesn't happen in a critical moment, we'll all refer to it. But if you look at the intention to play first, that's what I was looking at. And I saw a player that was playing for the team... Even when he had his bib on, he was playing for the team. And I thought that was brilliant. There was even a bit in that kerfuffle when Nenny, who I don't think was in the squad, I think he was just somebody sitting behind the bench. Even he was down in the corner. Wasn't that, that tell you <laughs> He was, ran uh, 50 uh, it, yards to choke yeah. somebody. I think Elneny, it was yeah, I'm don't. i I'm not sure if he's in the squad. I'm sure someone will look. But he was in the corner. He was. And I, he was in the squad, was he? Okay. Yeah. He was in the corner. And I'm thinking, well, mate, you you got no chance of coming on. What are you doing? And I, but he was like right in there. It was just the whole thing screamed collective. And for me, that is when people talk about Arsenal coming back, um, when my sort of peak going time, we do that, we used to do that all the time. What we did there, that's what we used to do we used to go to Old Trafford. When we went there, we used to go there mob-handed and we used to say, right, we're here and you're not getting out of here, right? Um, and we used to take them on and that's exactly what we did. And by taking them on in that way, we took away their main strength and, and I still, I cannot get, I could not be happier as a fan. Honestly, I've just been buzzing ever since. Yeah, it, I think it, I broke my Twitter record yesterday. I'm saying about 4,000. So um, I apologize to all the podcast listeners for flooding their timelines right now.
1: Yeah, everybody was euphoric after it. Now, you know, I think there were so many great little pictures and images from the game of dejected Spurs players on the ground with Arsenal players hovering over them the most iconic being that Socratis one where he's over Harry Kane with his arms apart and I had said to Tim on Twitter someone needs to photoshop this uh to uh where Cristo Redentor is in Brazil and and of course it was done and you can find it on my Twitter timeline it's fantastic uh every bit as great as I hoped it would be um uh Paul let me just ask you a really quick question here that that isn't germane to this game per se but is this really sort of the problem and the reason why it's good that fans don't run a club? Because two days ago, there were people saying, you know, get of, get Ramsey out of the club as quickly as you can. Do whatever you can to get rid of him. You know, I'm glad we didn't give him a contract. Thank God we dodged a bullet. And today, there's just people all over Twitter saying, give Mesut Ozil's money to Aaron Ramsey and sign him up. And they should have given him a contract on the pitch at full time. We're such short-termists yeah. in our thinking, but as inspired as his performance was, as uh, qu- as much quality as it had and passion as it had, if the decision is, you know, a- Aaron Ramsey's going to want a couple hundred thousand a week. And that can't be a situational player. That can't be a rotational player. We already have a potential albatross around our neck and Ozil, who we'll get to in a moment uh, in-, in a very similar type of situation. So as great as it was to see him have this hurrah, have this performance, have this this passion for the club in the Derby, you can't be basing the strategy of your club personnel-wise on. A forty-five-minute performance and and one uh, fight in the by the corner flag um, over players that are that are this significant, right?
2: Yeah, exactly right. And it was a pr- very particular way of playing that suits Ramsey. And as Tim said, I agree with Tim's point, which was we were actually just about in the game for the first five or ten minutes. I mean, I, I went out and mapped who, uh, what our our attacking actions were, and before the goal. We basically had one run down the right and one run down the left in uh, 11, you know, the 11 minutes after the start of the second half, where we should have been coming out all charged up. So we shouldn't, uh, this was not a perfect performance by us. Uh, the good news is, and, and maybe that's always typical of a derby and a derby with lots of scraps in it and back and forth and so many changes. Um, but we can play a lot better than this. A, a lot cleaner, a lot more clinical. Uh, Ramsey was absolutely key to the second half, but this was a setup that suited him and we can't always play like that. But whatever we say about Ramsey in this game, the same, str- you know, we shouldn't then go on and make the same mistake about Ozil because right now we're in the, we've written Ozil off today and he'll be of no use to us and he's shit, except sometimes he's brilliant. When things okay. are set up for him, I think it's a and slightly you,
1: different situation, though, and and we can come to why that is in a well, moment.
2: It it is, but there's a part of it that it isn't, and the same is true of Obama Yang. He was a guy who can't do anything but score, but when you put him in the right setup, suddenly the guy is actually doing everything, including scoring. And I, so I do think there's the concern to your point that one can get pa- carried away on the Ramsey thing. On the I, other I think hand, you're begging what, the
1: question a little, but I, I'll explain my, my position in a moment. Yeah, go, go on.
2: All right. So here's my true answer to what you're saying. Uh, I think Emery said he had a plan for Ramsey. I think this was it. He tried this plan in the first two games of the season, but he tried it with Ozil on the pitch. I think we all concluded you can't have both. But if you get it right... Uh, This is how you use Ramsey as that pressing agent, that pressing trigger in the middle of the pitch, uh, ideally with uh, Obama-Yang and Lacazette either side, so that when he forces a turnover – now, can you do this for 90 minutes every game? No. But you get it right. You point him in uh, – you apply him at the right time. This is how you use Ramsey.
1: Sure. And here's all I would say with that. If your decision is not to re-sign Ramsey, the decision should be based (coughs) on the following things. We can't give 200,000 pounds a week to a guy who has a history of injury absences, doesn't fit the system as closely as we'd like. We really want to get Nelson into the rotation next season. We probably need to go out and buy another wide player, which means Ramsey's playing time, maybe even further limited. And we like the player, but we don't see him as a foundational cornerstone. And because we don't see him that way, that wage can't be given to him. It's not that I he's crap. I fully endorse right. this view. Okay. So, so, and again, that is... That's tough, and and you know I said this on Twitter. Good football clubs, and Tim, you've banged on about this a lot too. Good clubs do this. Good clubs make these hard choices. Make the choices not to give contracts to popular <clears> players <throat> because for one reason or not, another, it's not a fit. Now, they usually sell the player <laughs> and make yes, money I'll off of it. Right? The
4: mistake we, is they, we haven't sold. We well, well right, but,
1: but you right. don't compound the mistake by then... Paying him, uh, you know, money that, that hamstrings your, your yep. wage bill further and, and pushes you up against FFP. Clive, I can tell you're begging to jump back in. So before I go to Tim, why don't no, you get, get no. in here?
4: No, you're, make, you're making great points, right? Just, it's, it's just we, we're, we're turning a new page, this club is. and We can't turn a new page if you sign all the old players on, on double the money, right? So it's just we're not going to get – we're not going to change our face. Right, Spurs. We know, we knew all their faces. They were turning up with. They've not made any changes, not made any signings. We had something new to show them. And next year, we're going to have more new things to show other people. We have to embrace renewal. And this guy's given us ten great years. It's the club's fault. We haven't got money back, and it's maybe Ramsey's agent's fault. They didn't sign the contract soon enough and allowed other players to develop close to his, to Ramsey's potential right in front of his eyes, which made the club change their strategy. And I think that's a real shame. It's a real shame that he's going to probably end his career that way at Arsenal. But while he's going out, he's shutting the door really hard behind him. And that was a really good performance at the weekend. And not even I can deny that
1: (laughs) yeah and look and and emery did make some comments today in a press conference i believe that sort of hinted towards look ramsey has one eye on his future but he still has one eye on his present he's balancing that professionally and we appreciate him for it essentially and i think it's just a a reminder that you know this is not going to change and tim i'll give you a shot at this i mean bringing Mm -hmm. it back to the game how impressed were you with this performance and do you think that um you know, Aaron Ramsey is going to be a bittersweet departure. That this is a player who has a lot of really nice history at the club that we are going to miss when he's gone. Uh, when he's gone.
3: Yeah, of course, it, it will be. And, you know, uh, there's no need to bring it up again, I guess. The fact it's going to be on a free is is particularly galling, but not um not towards the actual sentiment towards the player himself. That's more at the club and their handling of the situation. But yeah, absolutely. And more so because, you know, this is the final year of his contract and he knows it, you know, like he absolutely knows now that he's going on a Bosman and he's still, you know, he, he got kind of, uh, I don't want to say sent to the Ukraine, but, you know, he was, he was, playing in that game in the ukraine it would have been easy for him i think and i'm not saying he'd have been right to think this but a lot of footballers and there's probably one in our squad who wears the number 10 shirt at the moment yeah. would would have would have been thinking fuck off. I'm not going to Kiev or no, or if I am, then I'm just going to like sulk and I'm going to play wall passes and I'm going to sit and I'm going to wait for my fat contract and I'm not going to put it in, in training. But you know, Ramsey's not like that. He's, he's never been like that. He's, he's super, he's, he's, he's super professional.
4: Um, I think like that. Yeah. when When I look at him, mate, I think he really wants to stay. And that's that's a player Mm. that does not want to go. You Mm. don't do that on the sidelines because you're giving it big time, Charlie. You Mm. do that because you really, really care about the club. And all I say is about the agent, I really mean it. That agent has overplayed his hand. And I think if Ramsey ever wanted to stay, he'd have to lose the agent and renegotiate because that's the person that's blown it for him. He's got a young family, just had twins. You can imagine he was not looking to go anywhere no yeah, yeah. way no way this is a life decision right and he just overplayed his hand with the club regime change he's ended up in a situation where I actually think he's quite gutted this yeah. major would have suited him if we wish he's probably thinking I wish he'd come along two years ago for me he could have helped my career and we're in a situation now where we're watching someone go out the door And I'm not his biggest fan, but I can see the player. I can see the the emotions around this player. And You can't deny it when he plays well. You can't take your eyes off him. And I'm telling you, I will be kicking his agent... Right in his head and getting rid of him and making sure that I got got looked after, but that's his mistake, and I think it's really quite disappointing. So, and
3: yeah, yeah, and you can see like the way his Twitter, uh, his agent behaves on Twitter, and you think that's you know, I know like a lot of agents have to be slightly gobshitey for want of a better word, but you you kind of it comes across as a bit of a cowboy
4: to be honest. He's an an idiot, he doesn't, you should be looking after Aaron (laughs) Ramsey, he should be looking after. Jay Manuel Thomas. Do you know what I mean? <laughs>
1: <laughs> not Aaron Randy, and, and by the way, I, I hate to bring this stuff back to American sport, but there is a, a an analogue to this with a guy named Le'Veon Bell in the NFL who held out which basically means, you know, he went on strike this entire football season where he was uh, due to make over ten million dollars this season, made none of it, zero, because he wanted a new contract. And as a result, his marketability has taken a hit. He lost ten million dollars, and he's probably not gonna get the contract next season that he thought he was gonna get, and this was all perpetrated by his agent. So, I mean, these players are vulnerable to bad advice. And, you know, yeah. I-, I think Aaron Ramsey probably the timing of everything, right? New coach who wasn't as Committed to him as the old one, um, Aaron, Mesut Ozil just sort of showed the player power can get you a huge contract, and and his agent probably thought this will be a layup. You know, we've got yeah. we've got Dick Law and, and Ivan Gazidis who love handing out money like candy, no big deal. And then things changed for him. Go ahead, Tim.
3: Yeah, yeah, and and I think you can see that's so I think Clive's right. That's that's kind of out of step with Ramsey himself. <clears throat> Excuse me. So like during the summer, you didn't see a lot of kind of oh this club are in for him, this club are in for him, Chelsea, what i United. It was it was a little bit quiet, so I, I think you're right. I think his preference would have been to stay, but obviously to get a really good contract out of it, and that that doesn't look like at this stage that's quite going to happen. But um, you know, you you could say, and I, I don't mean this with any degree of cynicism, it, he's he's the one who will get. Uh, He'll get a good contract if he keeps going like this because he'll become much more marketable. And I don't think that's why he's doing it. I just think this is the way he is. But he'll be much more attractive um, to other clubs. And, you know, they'll, they'll look at him and think, wow, that's like a really serious professional. He's still doing a really good job. He's still, you know, shop windowing himself. And I think my kind of final thought on it is maybe, maybe... Um, I'm starting to only just slightly rethink, you know, this this kind of idea that, you know, we need these two wide forwards who play in the half spaces behind the striker because that's how Emery plays, and I, th- I think largely he does. But what we saw on Sunday, and we have seen it a few times this season, is that he's got a very horses for courses uh, kind of approach. You know, different plans for different teams, and and that doesn't always mean that he needs Aubameyang behind a striker. He, you know, he changed things in that second half. And that's not to say that the way we played in the second half against Spurs is the way we're going to play all the time. What what we're seeing is that Emery is very prepared. Um, to do different things for different games, and that that to me still doesn't mean that Ramsey's going to get in the team every week he's not, but what it shows is that he's incredibly useful in certain situations, and he was. Really, really useful in this situation, because who else in our you know we talk about him, and i 've talked about him not really fitting um, anymore, but I mean I, I look at the job he did in that second half, and i can 't think of anyone in the league, let alone in our squad, who would have done it who'd have done it quite as well
1: and you know by the way, that performance will have given Emory more confidence in being able to pick him and call on him and mm-hmm. use him in key situations going forward and you know look, this is the reality, I can be sad that he's off. But believe that the club has ultimately made the right choice in not handing him a big contract. You know, mm-hmm. the, those two things are not incompatible. You can feel a great affinity to a player, but recognize that that player moving on may be part of the, of a process that's important for the club. So we can get off of that topic. I, I was just really impressed with with the performance and the commitment. I mean, he is a professional; he should put in that commitment, but he did. He he was hugely valuable. Um, in terms of us getting the result, Paul, let's let's do some quick hits, just real quick, before we get to the Ozil situation and say goodbye. Um, I thought Kolasinac had his best performance as an Arsenal player. I still thought it was uneven. A lot of people thought it was spectacular. I I had some issues with it, just because I always had some issues. I just generally have issues. I am laden I saw, with issues. I saw
2: you having issues with him on Twitter. Yes. No,
1: no, I did not. What? I don't. I don't believe I said a thing about Kolasinac in, in this game.
2: Anyway, or maybe it was the WhatsApp. Okay, it, it was yep. the
1: WhatsApp. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thanks for outing me, but no. Yeah. I, look, I mean, overall, though, he just looks so much more comfortable in the back three, playing as a full back, a wing back, I should say. I mean, do you think that this was his strongest performance? Does this maybe give you a little pause to reconsider whether he could be even picked ahead of Nacho Monreal if we stay in a back three?
2: In a back three, yeah, uh, he certainly makes a case. Um, now, to be fair you know he's having a run of fitness which he hasn't had for a while uh, and we're giving him at least lately the freedom to play to his stronger game i don't get why a wing back can't defend because like a wing back is not a wing and we sometimes say well he's not a very good full because he's a wing back but That shouldn't be. It may be, but it shouldn't be. Um, I think that's where coaching comes in. And we have apparently some very good coaches. Can't we just teach him to full back too? And then he'll like be really good at various parts of the games. Um, So my hope for him, I thought he was really good in this. I didn't think he was perfect. I didn't think he was spectacular is too strong, but he was was a force of nature going forward and he was pretty decent defending. so that's my Collasenatch take. Yeah, no, Why I got another quick hit for the you. the fuck out of him and make him a good fullback?
1: Yeah, I, I don't see that happening. I don't think he has the defensive instincts or quality for it. But I certainly think he uh, can work in a okay. back three. Look, let's uh, let's one more quick hit for you, and then I've got a, a mentality question for you, Clive. Um, Ganduzi, how much hmm. do you love Matteo Ganduzi?
2: Not as much as you. Uh, no, yeah, he's really? great. <laughs> yeah, look, I came out. I, of this. I just want to cradle yeah. him
1: in my arms and bring I, him, I with I him know, places, and yeah, well. like one of those baby carriers you know where you like put them on your chest and they the legs come out and anyway yeah keep going
2: yeah well you, you could buy them some of those underwear
1: and, and, and clothes laundry. i believe they have that yeah
2: yeah on a kind of sentiment monthly and stuff uh, i did actually get a question recently i think people confused me with some kind of help desk for the underwear don't, thing which don't, is don't do confi- it. I, and they asked uh, if any of the uh ladies underwear were actually edible And I explained, all ladies' underwear are edible.
1: Technically, everything is edible if you're willing to put up with the side effects. But yeah, go on about Gendouzi.
2: Uh, Oh, uh, sorry. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, no, I thought he was really good. He obviously came on with a level of energy and application on this. He kind of took the game away from them. Um, We were combining that with a switch to the back four. Oh, yeah, it was your wet dream of a substitution. Mustafi off, Gendouzi on. I'm like... Elliot just came, didn't
1: he? Yeah, the problem is I, I didn't have anything left after the Obama angle. Oh so. uh, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. Yeah, true. But it was
1: true. in my refractory period. Um yeah. it gets <laughs> so, longer
2: as you get older. I, I thought I think he took it away this game away. And uh, the you know, that goes along with the idea that Emery comes out of this with three or four formations that maybe he can toggle between depending on game state, uh Tactical changes of the other guy, you know, he's got two, three of the back formations. Now he's got, uh, a back four with a four, two, three, one, and he's got this, uh, four, three, three kind of thing. And then with a Ramsey twist up front that uh, with three in midfield, I mean, when you look at the Torreira goal as well, it's Ramsey drops back beside Chaka and they become the pivots. And magically, at the same time, Terrera just happened to be drifting forward. So lots of options coming out of this game. Um, and one final point on that, this, you heard Gary Neville talk and others saying this was the best Premier League game they'd seen all, all, all season. And you saw the Liverpool game and people saying this is the best Premier League game we've seen all season. We've probably played two of the best handful of games Man, we're fun to watch.
1: Yeah, we can be. I mean, and the and the funny thing is, I will say that I'm not I'm not sure we've been so fun to watch when we were on Project Twenty Four and we were ripping off run, uh, wins against lesser teams. But I love love the way Emery prepares us for big games. Even the losses to City and Chelsea had really exciting things in them that that really encouraged me. So, you know, it is fun to go into big games and feel like we really have a fighting chance again. And Clive, that's where I wanted to ask you about mentality. It is painful for me to admit this, but the last couple of seasons, I felt like Spurs have almost had a swagger against us. Like they knew they could get the ball off us, create transitional chances that we'd be easy to play against. And I think they sort of looked forward to it. Now, that doesn't mean they always got results or even played well. But I, I think we were almost more nervous than they were in some of those games. And I think there was a big sort of sea change in this game. You could see it. Vertonghen getting himself sent off, Harry Kane pouting on the pitch, Erickson losing it with, with Shaka going over a little more easily than he liked. The fight, you know, where they they didn't necessarily want any piece of Kalasinac, for example, when he came when he came running <laughs> in. Um you know, I, I thought that we regained some of the psychological superiority here that by the end of the match they were imploding, they were diving into nasty challenges and complaining to the ref and getting you know, getting mad at us for for the theatrics and it just sort of seemed like maybe, just maybe, a little bit of their belief in themselves and their superiority had waned here. I mean, do you think I'm overreading you know, mm-hmm. reading too much into this, or do you think that this may have been the players at Arsenal and the players at Spurs. Maybe an important turning of the tide back towards what we considered normal service just a few short seasons ago.
4: I think this is a significant day. Um, I really do. We beat them by two goals last year, but I felt we stole the game from them. I felt we snuck up on them, and I felt we scored two quick goals, and we just laughed at them. And, and they, they, the they, when we went to Wembley, they, they sort of beat us. No, we could have got a goal in the last minute to equalise, but I felt they were better than us, and um, and and I, and I felt they've been more consistent than us, especially away from home in the last couple of years. But this game felt different to me because of the way it went, the way it to, toed and froed. And I think we actually showed them that we were better than them. I I, I think, I said it before, we took their strengths away. We, am, we are now not giving them targets, so we're now not giving them weakness. We are now competing with them, and I know I sound boring, but being competitive... It's one of the key fundamentals in football. You have to be competitive. You can't show any weakness. You can't have people not running back. You can't have people not tight enough to their men. You can't have people holding on to the ball too long. You've got to be direct. You've got to make people defend. You've got to hurt people. You've got to move them around. And when you do that, you find their weaknesses and then you see their quality. You know, and people get seduced by players' quality based on what they do in good times. And what you need to do, you need to look at what were you doing in adversity. And when it was 2-1 and that ball went into the net and you see Torreira pick it out of the net and say, right, let's have it. Let's put it back on, we're not done yet. And that's what we've lacked. We've lacked that spine. We've lacked that, that belief. And it's coming from some of the new people that are in the club, from the new coaches, from the new players. And the players that were there last year are massively bought in. And I think we surprised them. And I thought we would. We surprised them with our ferocity. We surprised them with our mentality. We surprised them with our execution. And I think, uh, okay, You don't want to say it's a definitive day, because now we're going to play a mixed team potentially on the 19th, and they need that trophy more than we do. And it's going to be very interesting to see how both teams approach it. But for me, Bournemouth, Liverpool, Tottenham, three massive games, really good performances. The belief is right up there. and Now we've got Manchester United, a place where we have got belief issues. If there's any team that can do it, it's this team at this time that can go there and put in a performance. You can't guarantee the result, but we have gone to Man- Manchester United and we we have barely performed over the last few years. Let's go there and make sure we do that this time.
1: Yeah, and, and by the way, I thought this was a brilliant day for Emery, who is really coming to his own now between the Bournemouth game, the Liverpool game, this, the way he's you know he managed the trip to Ukraine uh, w- with real pragmatism, and I think he feels very much in control. The way he was trying to excite the the Emirates crowd at various points of the game you know telling them to get up you know keep cheering he's involved every minute of the game that doesn't necessarily mean the involvements are effective I mean just because a coach is up off his you know his chair doesn't mean he's he's doing good things but you can really see the extent to which he's helping the players through the game with little adjustments and you know, ultimately it really feels like Emery's team right now. And you really see his, his blueprint, his imprint on it. You know, I have said in the past that halftime changes are often an indication that you got it wrong from the start. I don't think that was the case in this day. I think you got it right from the start and then got it right again at halftime, which was great to see. He just feels like he has a real command over the weapons in his arsenal, so to speak. So, Tim, now I have to give you the pleasure of talking about Mesodozal.
4: And before we go, we
1: we have to talk about this. I mean, look, and for anyone who's saying, oh, come on, you know, we just won the derby. Let's talk about that. Let's stay focused on that. I couldn't agree with you more. But look, he is the highest paid player at our club by miles. He is the most popular player at our club by miles. This is a player who is just a massive, massive part of the club and potentially the future of the club based on what we're paying him. And by the way, Paul's got to run. Paul, if you're still there, you want to say goodbye? Bye. Bye, Paul. Add Paul's fun. on Twitter. at on my pants. And we will be wrapping up momentarily. So, uh, you know, for those of you who were thinking of going, don't go. We're talking about Mesut Ozil. This is what gets the clicks, after all. Um, so, Tim, I mean, I mean, first of all, l- let me ask it to you this way. There are two possibilities. One is he genuinely has back spasms. He was out because he has back uh-huh. spasms. Now, we can address why we believe or don't believe in that. But let's just let's just say for a minute that that is a totally plausible explanation. He has back spasms. That's why I missed the game. That's why I missed the Bournemouth game. That's why I missed the trip to Ukraine. Which is worse for Arsenal long-term? That Mesut Ozil had a massive falling out with the coach and is pouting and you know refused to show up? Or that Mesut Ozil has chronic back problems that are going to cause him mm. to miss huge stretches of games and potentially deteriorate physically? Which is the worst scenario for us?
3: Um, I think they both add up to the same thing, really. Um, <clears throat> uh, yeah, I mean, you could say if... If the situation is that he's pouting a little bit, then maybe that affects the morale of the squad, but it doesn't really look like it to but me at the moment. But you could I'm turn
1: not, around, right? I mean, theoretically, yeah. that's recoverable. <laughs> if he's broken, yeah, you yeah, can't yeah. fix him.
3: Yeah, yeah. No, exactly, exactly. And um, I, I don't think that him pouting would... You know, lots of pouty players get transfers. Um, but, you know, that doesn't seem to put people on it. might make them think about the price, but, you know, it, it doesn't tend to put put people off but um yeah it's it's definitely it's a situation isn't it and it it has been for the whole year really from the colds the back spasms the falling out with the manager at at training which um i told you at the time was absolutely true came from a very very well sourced place it's hard to debate it at this
1: point i think you'd have to say yeah
3: yeah 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 so there is an issue there um that that needs to be dealt with one way or another i you know i'm I I think um, what Paul said earlier in the podcast is true and we should be careful not to because the narrative swinging with every game isn't it and there's always because of the nature of our attack there's always going to be at least two players who who don't play um basically A look at all that firepower we had at this game um and it wasn't even in the 18. You know, it's crowded up there, and it's, it's almost analogous to um, the top six at the moment. You know, there, there's six really good teams there, and the two that finish outside the top four are going to be... At the- disaster, in crisis, rubbish, everything needs... Yeah, and they're going to have 78 up. points, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, exactly, and, and it's kind of like that with Arsenal's attack at the moment. Every game, there's going to be one or two players who either don't play or get a little cameo or maybe don't play at their absolute best and it's, oh, they're rubbish, we've got to get rid of them, we got to do this, we've got to do that and I, I've I've done that at times this season and I've gone, oh no, yeah, we must play like this all the time, we must play Aubameyang and Lacazette together, we must, uh, you know, we must play to like inside forwards and and actually what we're seeing is it it changes from game to game so and and I remember doing the Leicester podcast when we, we had a whole like, you know, purring over Ozil section and rightly so, because it was probably the best individual performance of the season. Um, so I'm I'm wary about going overboard and saying like, right, that's it. He's rubbish. Get rid of him and all of this. I, I do think there's been something brewing there um, all season and it, it's probably a situation we need to address. Um maybe with some measure of finality. Um, but like I say, I'm still open-minded about it because I'm I'm completely open to the idea that he'll go and play, I don't know, <laughs> Liverpool away maybe in a couple of weeks and he'll take them apart and everyone will say, see, we must play Ozil all the time. We must build it around him. I, I think what is what the bottom line is at the moment is we're not getting the best out of him often enough and what the reasons for that are, are are really maybe not quite immaterial but they're not that important what what we've the situation we've got is by hook or by crook we've got this really talented player that um that is on a lot of money he's 30 um so if we don't want him that that's hard to shift um but for one reason or another we can't get him on the pitch often enough and whether that's because you know his back's playing up, or whether it's because he's been told he's on the bench and he said "fuck off, I'm not sitting on the bench." It, it's kind of immaterial. I, either way, we've got an issue, and it needs solving. I I agree with you. I I think it would be preferable if it was you know just a kind of you know he he doesn't really like this new regime, which you know which which can happen. Um, and you know he, whether Emery wants to play with that type of number ten you know you, you you could understand it from Erzo's point of view if he thinks mm, this this team isn't really moving in my direction anymore and you know you look at the way they played in this game and and it isn't on that you know Erzo wouldn't have been able to do the things that we did against Spurs that doesn't mean he's useless for every game far from it but he wouldn't have been able to do that and you know obviously that that means that one way or another he's not we're not getting value for the money that we've put in. And um, you know, honestly, given the choice, I'd rather have let Urzil go and perhaps put a little bit more in, in the Ramsey package. But I'm I'm fairly relaxed about both of them going if if it means getting two players in who who kind of fit what we want to do more often.
1: Yeah.
3: Um because at the moment what we're saying is that they're kind of both cameo players which um, which, given you know the, the the level of talent they have and the, the wages that 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 comes with, is is probably not ideal. But yeah, we've got a situation there, and I, I don't think it's going away um, anytime quickly.
1: Yeah, I, look, you know how Manchester City are buying the league, right? They have zero players that make more than Mesut Ozil. Okay, Kevin De Bruyne supposedly makes three fifty a week, which is what Ozil supposedly makes. They have no one that makes more than that. It's not to say Mesut Ozil is a bad player. When you commit to a 30-year-old on 350000 a week, that is a determination that that player can be not just influential for you, but can be the difference between mediocrity and exceptionalism, right? Um, and so he has to be evaluated at that level. And any thought that we're going to move him on, I mean, I've seen people being like, oh, we'll sell him to Inter. Since when can Inter Milan pay £350,000 yeah, yeah. a week wages? Let alone, I mean, they
4: won't, they won't have to, right? Because we'll have to pay part of that to get rid of him.
1: Well, right. So if we want to get rid of him, we're going to have to eat part of his contract and then probably take a vastly reduced um, transfer fee. And that's, that's where I'm going to get to my, my question for you, Clive, to wrap this up, which is, look, we just played arguably our best game of the season, or maybe inarguably, <clears throat> and we did it without Mesut Ozil. Does that mean Mesut Ozil isn't good? No, of course he's good. But what it means is we can be the best version of ourself without him. And if you can be the best version of yourself without your most expensive player, then you need to think about moving on that player and replacing him with players that really move the needle. Because Mesedoso's wages could be two or even three supremely talented young players that form the backbone of a future arsenal, that that solve our problems at the wing, that solve our problems at center back, that become the left back that we desperately need. This is not a referendum on whether he's good. He is clearly good. And on his day, he can be the best playmaker in the world. But... I don't know that there that Mercurial number ten in a in a four three three is a player that Emery needs or wants, and we're paying him all the money. So, Clive, I mean, if there was someone willing to take him off of us, um, is there? I mean, for you, I, this this almost feels like a layup. But if someone was willing to take him off of our hands, would you sell him?
4: Well, I would. Well, you, you you know my thoughts, right? I I don't believe in players staying too long. I think we have to be much more comfortable with renewal. I've been saying it for years. But you need to you need to show teams something else. You can't keep doing the same things. Well, I say that while recognising that, in my opinion, Mesut Ozil is our most talented footballer. Without one of the most top five talented footballers I've ever seen in live. Right? That doesn't mean. He's right for Arsenal right now. Now, if, you know, potentially we could have been in a situation where we're paying Ramsey 250 and Ozil 350, Now, £600,000 a week wages going to two players that are not going to improve. That is not smart business, right? You need to create room to renew your club. So I think we're all in the position that potentially this needs to change. Ozil, for me, just lacks a little bit of intensity. Football's not only about intensity. There are other days we need something else. Um, I, I look at it slightly differently. I look at it from a squad perspective. I look at what the squad needs. The squad probably needs defenders that we all know about, but we we definitely need a, a fast left-footed forward, and we could probably do with a a attacking midfielder that carries the ball that with speed, with an end product. And I think that's what the squad needs. And if these two players are not providing that ability and intensity and ball-carrying ability, then we need to move forward. But that's not a bad thing. It's just a period in our history that we need to move on from. And I think um, we should be getting more comfortable with it. And I, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm I, with Tim. I don't want to... After the Leicester game, come on, guys. We've watched football for years. Have you ever seen anything like that? I mean, that was ridiculous, right? But since then, he's not he's not shook a leg, and he's comfortable taking the money, and with a with a with a dodgy haystack, right? So it's not like that's what we we that's not what you want from your supposed franchise player. He should be setting examples, and it's the same rules for um, for me when I when I judge Ramsey. If I think a player's been far too individual and think about themselves ahead of the team, it's the same for him. Despite his talent. We need, we need a collective, and we saw what a collective could do versus Spurs. The collective is very, very strong, and that to me looks like, you know, that looks like Arsenal. That's yep. what it looks like to me, and everything about it, even the fighting, that's the Arsenal that I know, and I, and I loved it.
1: And, and, I mean, it is a reminder that modern football, maybe more than ever before, is so tactical and so meticulous that no matter how talented the player, if they are not the fit for the approach, they do not help the team. You know, I think 10 15 years ago, the team with the most talent quite frequently was the team that finished on top. Um, you know, F- Ferguson had a had a real edge because maybe he understood some of the things that are only being under, understood now and Wenger, you know, I think was had an edge with fitness and preparation and certainly um, you know, acquiring talent from France, but we're seeing this. I mean, Mesidovic is undeniably talented, but we can set up our team to be more successful at times without him. And so You know, if your perspective is he definitely has back spasms, this isn't some nefarious thing, there's nothing else going on, you're entitled to that opinion. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we should be holding on to him because that's still a lot of money being spent on a guy who can't be available regularly. And that kind, you know, we aren't Manchester City. Look, you could say, we have a billionaire owner. Well, he's not putting money in. I can't call him up. You can't call him up and say, put some money in. So we have to work within this framework. I mean, Tim, last question for you. If he could go, would you would you want to see that happen? Not not because you don't like him, but in the best interest of the club, would you move him on if it was possible?
3: Yeah, 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 definitely. I, I just sense it, it's kind of that time. Do you know what I mean? That, that it's probably it's probably best for both parties. Probably best for him to do something else, get a little bit more out of his comfort zone, and and I, I, yeah, I, like if we could get good money and reinvest it. Then yeah, I'd I'd be okay with that. I think we'd struggle to buy a player as talented as he is, but um, I think we'd be able to maybe buy one that fits um, a little bit more. And and it ju- it just kind of seems like to me that maybe the Özil era, as it were, should have ended with the Wenger era. It it seems like from what from what we're hearing that he's not really taking to. To Emory's methods or his style and and you know, that's understood, you know, not, not everyone's going to I, I've been saying since the summer since before Emory took a coaching session at least two big heads are gonna roll in that attack and we already know one of them um, and yeah it, it, it If we could get a decent amount of money, I'd, I'd do it. I'm not necessarily sure it's that straightforward though.
1: I Totally agree And I think that there's maybe more twists in this tale, but we will see. And uh, Tim is going to have a preview of the Manchester United game on Patreon, so I'm not going to ask him about it. We are going to do a live broadcast tomorrow to talk uh, about the Manchester United game, just sort of a chat, live chat. Uh, Tim will have his Patreon-only preview video, which is reason enough to sign up because they are fantastic. Thanks to Lazlo Phillip for the graphics. Clive will leave with this. Uh, No Shaka. What do you think he will and should do lineup-wise for United away?
4: Well uh, I like to see back three again. Mustafi went off, so I haven't seen if he's really injured. I hope he's <laughs> if he's not say, you stick with I'd, the back three or no um if if he's fit, I'd stick with back three definitely um and I would go I do see Gwen as the Shaka replacement, and so I would go with Gwen but I mean he started
1: I, against city right like there's no reason to think he can't start against united
4: yeah it is it, one to watch though you know there is a there is a little there's a bit of me that's thinking Old Trafford's not the place for inexperienced players, but there's a bit of me saying this kid doesn't care about experience, he just wants to go out there and play. I think if we do play him, I do, you know, I do see Mikatarian and Iwobi starting, and having that sort of square is a good, nice cradle to put him into and give him options to spread the play. So that's what I would do. I imagine that I would. I know time only played half a game, and if it was planned, great, because he's going back to Old Trafford. He's not going to go there and play bad, so that could be really interesting. I Again, the well, way we did nothing wrong, I think he suits the start of games because we get control. And then and let's see what happens. I do think one of the forwards may start on the bench, but, and it may be Lacazette again, but that's where we are since we lost Danny Welbeck, and that's a real shame, and that's how we got to manage December. What we do now will get us through that Christmas week with those two players intact. And we need that until January comes along. And you saw what Vatonga did yesterday to Lacazette. That could easily have been a, a, a two-monther. Yeah. And if that had happened, we are in big trouble. And that's yeah. how quickly a season can turn, right? So um, we've got to be conservative. Play one of these strikers. Make sure we don't play both of them For the full 90 minutes because otherwise we're going to lose one of them at a, at a crucial stage in the season
1: yeah well I'll tell you this much United are bad and we're going to fucking smash them so I'm looking forward to it um, it's going to be great so yeah uh, I think that's all we need to say about that Tim's on Twitter at Stilberto thanks Tim my pleasure as always Clive's on Twitter at P A F C. thanks Clive thank you very much my name's Elliot Smith You can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. Give us a five star review. Write nasty things about Paul, especially Paul and only Paul in the comments. Uh, We will do a live broadcast tomorrow. It may take you until kickoff at Manchester United to listen to this podcast. So who knows what you'll have time for. Uh, I just want to say how much we appreciate you, as always. Um, This was a wonderful, wonderful day, this win. And it was a wonderful chance to relive it with these very intelligent and thoughtful people, uh, myself excluded. We are looking forward to coming back and talking about the United win on Thursday, which is when we will release the next podcast. But in the interim, make sure you go sign up for Patreon. On. come on it's Christmas that can be uh, tis the season and then you can get Tim's previews and are in the spotlight we're either going to do Torreira or Aubameyang next so you'll want to look forward to that and that'll be coming up in the not too distant future in any event up the Arsenal here we go Old Trafford break the hoodoo we will talk to you after Arsenal 10 United nil.